You mean the novelty? Welcome to The Novelty, a podcast dedicated to books. Not just the Western male-centric books from your high school lit class, but also read books by women, people of color, and from around the world. We'll dive into literary technique and character analysis. But don't worry, we aren't afraid to spill the tea and give our unfiltered opinions. Together, we'll redefine the classics. Will today's pick stand the test of time? Keep listening to find out. Hi, Neha. Hi, Shruti. How's it going? We just read Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami. What did you think? I Let me summarize it first. Okay. We're either going to have nothing to talk about or so many things to talk about. Mm-hmm. So this book is about a boy named Kafka who the story starts with him running away from home and he kind of goes to the secluded area where he meets a couple people that he has kind of a spiritual journey with. And then there's a simultaneous story about a man named Nakata whose connection to Kafka is unclear, but they are linked. And he goes on this quest kind of journey also searching for something that will connect everything together. And the reason my summary sucks is because the deeper you get into this book, the less of a plot there is. Or, like, a lot of things happen, but it just, it's not like a neat bow at the end of a storybook. Like, oh, yay, they got married. Or, oh, yay, he slayed the dragon. It just gets more and more murky. I feel like this book was, it started off simple. A simple concept. A 15-year-old boy running away from home. And when I like closed the book shut after I finished it, I it's so complex. There's not a lot of characters and there's not the plot isn't insane, but when you the more you think about it, the more it makes sense, but also the less it makes sense. Like it was a very very complex read. I think it took me yeah. a while to like understand what had happened. Even now, I don't know if I fully understood what happened. <laughs> I think there's a lot of ways to interpret what happened, but um yeah, it was it was a it was a crazy, a crazy journey. Did you pick a theme for this book? I did. And I think my theme was a little bit on the nose, mostly because the book was so complicated in itself that I just picked the easy way out when I was looking at a theme. And the theme that I picked was fate, because I think that's what the entire book is about. I can get more into fate when we're talking more about the book. But what theme did you pick? So I picked destiny. Which okay. <laughs> maybe we can talk about what the difference is between those two. Yeah. Um, I picked it in the first chapter because something that he said popped out. and I was like, oh, destiny, that might be interesting to look at. And I didn't realize that literally the entire book was going to be about destiny so I felt like okay this is maybe a little too obvious but there's a lot of other nuances to it yeah I think because I hadn't wrapped my head around what the book was actually about that I just picked I was like well obviously this whole book is about fate so I'm just gonna pick fate but I guess we can talk about why the whole book is about fate and that's because in the very beginning of the story Kafka, the main character, 
his dad kind of tells him a prophecy where he's going to kill him, the father, and marry or have intercourse with his sister and his mother. And I think it's because of that prophecy that kind of started the whole book because he was like, I want to run away from this and I want to not do this prophecy. But the definition of fate is that you can't really run away from it. So by doing that, he was going into his prophecy. And that's kind of what the book is about, is this weird prophecy that he's trying to run away from. Yeah, I guess let's just get straight to that, because that's, (laughs) I think, one of the weirder parts of the book is this Oedipus retelling slash Mm -hmm. inspiration. And it's interesting that you say running away, because I felt like he actually was chasing it the whole time. He was like, oh, I just have to do this. And until I do that, I can't do anything else. And he's so fixated on it. And it's a little weird the way that the author incorporates this Oedipus Rex kind of story, because in the original story, it's almost the opposite. Like Oedipus, is he lives with not his birth parents. So then when he hears the prophecy, he literally leaves because he's like, I don't want to risk ever you know, being with my mother, but then he is because he didn't realize that his birth mother is someone else, whatever, et cetera. It, he's trying to like escape it the whole time. And meanwhile, Kafka's like, oh, like, what if this girl was my sister? Like, as she's like in bed with me. I know. And I always th- I thought that was so interesting, like throughout the book where he, it's kind of like in Game of Thrones, where Jon Snow, like, he, he he wants to stay a virgin because he doesn't know who his birth mother is, and he's scared that if he has, like, intercourse with a prostitute that it's going to be his mom. And so it's kind of the same thing that Kafka goes through, where it's, like, every girl he meets that, like, fits the age and maybe the look, maybe not even the look, he's just convinced that this person is his sister or his mother, And there's no actual evidence that the girl that he met on the train, Sakura was her name, I think, was his sister. There was literally no way of ever proving the fact that they were related in any way. But I think he was, like you said, like so bound to his fate that he just convinced himself. Or maybe it was like fate bringing him to that person. And then he just knew that that was his sister in some way. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you want to look at it, but... It was just weird. Like it was I mean, even with um Miss Saiki, she is not probably not his mother. It's like he just projected this prophecy onto these two women and I don't know why. I mean, like Kafka clearly is trying to do something about dreams and like subconscious, unconscious, like that kind of exploration. And at some point, I lost track of, like, what was a dream and what was real and what was imagined. Because they all seem to live in this, like, I will say that he does a really good job writing of creating an atmosphere. Because I remember at the end of the book, Kafka and Oshima are talking about, I don't know, what he's going to do. And Kafka's like, oh, well, I guess I'll go back to school. And I was kind of like, What? Like, it took me out of it in the moment because I was like, oh, wait, school is a thing that exists. So that just shows he does such a good job of putting you in this weird, like, dreamland. But beyond that, I don't really, like, what is he trying to say about dreams? So is that what you think? You think that 
the things that were happening were in his sleep? Some of them were. Yeah. Some of them were less explicitly so. Like when Miss Saiki comes into his room in that library, it's described as if he's awake, but is he awake? He's seeing like a ghost-based child, basically. (laughs) (laughs) So the way that I kind of understood the book, and I think the reason why I had this perspective when I was reading the book is because I watch a lot of anime so I'm a little bit familiar with like the Japanese culture that they've put into this book about like the spiritual world and so I I think everything that happened in this book happened in the real world and then parallelly in a spiritual world so I think it's so hard to, to describe what I'm trying to explain without just explaining the whole book but basically, I think that, like, Kafka's spirit was going into Nakata's body. And Nakata's spirit went into the spiritual world when he was a child. So he only half exists. And then I think Miss Saiki, part of her, like, died when her lover passed away. And so she also lives half in the spiritual world and half in the real world. But I think Kafka, the person that we know as Kafka in the book, is never actually the 15-year-old boy that we know in the beginning of the book. I think he's embodied by Kafka, Miss Saiki's lover. Does that make sense? <laughs> kind of. So I think that's why he, he renames himself Kafka in the beginning of the book. Like uh-huh. What I understand, that's the moment where... Kafka, Miss Saiki's lover, enters the 15-year-old boy's body. And that's where the story begins. So that's why he's so drawn to, like, that area that Miss Saiki lives in because he's drawn to her. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the rest of the story is just in his body. And I think that Kafka, the 15-year-old boy, his he goes into Nakata's body, which is why Nakata kills the father. Hmm. So everyone's swapping souls. Yeah, that's kind of how I understood it. I don't know if that was the like the goal or if I'm just reading into things too much, but that's what made sense to me because otherwise, like nothing made sense. I was like, why would Nakata kill the guy? Like, what, he doesn't mm-hmm. even know Johnny Johnny Walker or Kaka's dad. So do you dad. think that the Nakata that we are reading about is the actual Nakata or his? soul that went into the spiritual world or is it old Kafka (laughs) I think it's all of that okay and I think that's why that's also where where I made the connection why Nakata and Miss Saiki die at the end of the the series but Kafka does not because I think Nakata and Miss Saiki live half in their spiritual world I think a part of them died in the like at some point with mm. Nakata part of him died when he was a kid and he mm-hmm. was unconscious and then Misaki I think part of her died when sh- her lover died but then they didn't completely die and that whole entrance stone situation was like when their, they actually die it's like when their spirit officially like leaves the real mm. world and goes into the spiritual world and for some reason Kafka the 15 year old boy that we know he never really died. I think he was his, I don't really understand completely, but I think 
he always has his body, but he's swapping with people. And Hmm. yeah, I don't know. So the way that I read the book, which I think makes less sense than your version. So I kind of like yours. But the way I thought about it was that Nakata is Kafka's dream self. Mm -hmm. Like when Nakata went into a coma or whatever happened to him as a child, that was when his, like he died. But because no one really knew what happened to him, his spirit or essence, I guess, still kind of existed. And it was just in the world as a force. Okay. And so then he, like, he can talk to cats. Like, he's on some other spiritual metaphysical plane. And then he goes and kills Johnny Walker. And that's something that Kafka wants. And so it happens. But it also is real. Like, it's not just a dream. It has some implication in the real world also. I see. I don't know. The more I talk (laughs) about it, the more (laughs) my theory starts to unravel. Yeah, I think that was the problem is like the more I thought about it, I think it was the Johnny Walker incident where I was like, this is the only thing that makes sense because Kafka doesn't remember what happened and Nakata remembers what happened, but he remembers not having control over what happened. So that's why I was like, okay, if we're looking at the spiritual sense of things, Kafka's spirit probably entered Nakata to kill the father because that was what the prophecy, his fate or destiny said, but I don't know. I don't either. I, you know, part of the reason we picked this book was because we were talking about magical realism. But when I was reading it, I started thinking about like what exactly constitutes magical realism. In the beginning, when I was reading, I was thinking almost like what is different about it than science fiction? Because in both those genres, things happen that don't happen in our world but they're given a different kind of explanation. And it's not just fantasy, like based on myth, it's kind of like something that could happen in our world. I don't know, what did you think about that? Yeah, I feel like it's it's interesting because I didn't know, I mean, I guess I should have known that this book was about magic, magic realism, but I didn't know. But I think based off like what I've read about Haruki Murakami is that most of his books are written this way just in kind of like like the surreal dreamlike perspective that we may or may not understand me as like a huge sci-fi fantasy fan I definitely have see a difference between it because I think going into like the Game of Thrones world of Lord of the Rings world you know that these things aren't real but they they make the story out of it but I think magic realism is there's like a thin line where you're not sure what's real and what's not real. And I think that's kind of the interesting part about it where you're, I feel like you're constantly questioning yourself and you're like, okay, was, did, was what just happened real or were they imagining it? You don't know. So I think that's the biggest difference between the two, but I quite enjoyed it, that aspect of the book, but I think there were lots of other problematic parts of the book that maybe we should talk about. <laughs> Do you want to start? Where to start? I don't even know. I guess, I mean, there's two parts that really stood out that kind of ruined it for me. One is, like, all the penises. (laughs) He's so obsessed with this, like, phallic imagery and descriptions. And I think we should cut this out, maybe. 
But can I just read to you some of the quotes that I saved from this book because of how, what the f*** they made me think. Okay. (laughs) The dog had a short tail and below its base, two large balls. That's it. It's just a random dog. (laughs) Two large balls. Okay. Another one. Back inside the hut, I dry off with the towel, sit down on the bed and look at my penis. A light colored, healthy, youthful penis. I'm trying so hard not to laugh while you're saying this. Like, what is happening? I can't take this. It was a lot. I agree. And I think it's honestly, I want to say that I would be a little bit more accepting of that kind of writing maybe if it was an older book. But unfortunately, I think this book was written in like 2002, mm-hmm. if I'm not wrong. It's it's really not that old. And it's so random. It's like, oh, here's a penis. Okay, now we're going to talk about Nakata in the truck. It's like, okay, what purpose did this serve? <laughs> no purpose that I can find. Yeah, um, I will say that was a little bit disturbing. But it's not, I don't, I don't think it's super uncommon in like old men authors. I think. Well, you know that Reddit thread making fun of men writing women? It's yeah. him. It's Murakami. That's yeah. who they're making fun of. I think that brings me to another problematic thing, which is just the way he writes. He wrote about women in this book. I think it was a little bit gross. And I don't know. I think he could come out and like make a statement about the things that he's written about. But I don't know if he understands them as being problematic. But yeah, I really hated how women were portrayed and the whole judgment of them and then also their lack of anything it's like I mean maybe we're just too woke I feel like there was a whole (laughs) moment maybe 2007 and that movie with Zoe Deschanel was in it and everyone was talking about Manic Pixie Dream Girl and that's I think one of the tropes that he uses is like these women are only there to serve the men in yeah in their lives like even the other men in this book well, the truck driver who's like with Nakata for most of his journey, mm-hmm. he had a more fleshed out character than like these the two women in this book, Sakura and Miss Saiki. And I don't know, I guess to some degree in a book, the main character is the main character and everyone else is written in relation to them. But they just had no other purpose or function or like any personality. And I, it was just icky. I, I know. And it, it was like the... I mean, I feel like this is this could be triggering for some people to read and to listen to this podcast. But the whole like rape situation was very breezed over and it was just like, a, oh, you raped me. And he's like, oh, yeah, I did. And then she's like, anyway. So I'm like, what? Yeah, That's- everyone moved on. Yeah. And I I could even understand if the reason he had put it in and put it there was to talk about like if you imagine things is it bad or like you know like what are the limits of your imagination and what's the difference between doing something in real life versus like thinking or fantasizing about it but he didn't go to that extent he just put it in there and then was like all right we're moving on and it wasn't even brought up again yeah it was just as like oh he had to do it to fulfill the prophecy and it's like you don't really want to root for the main character anymore when he's doing like these gross things. 
And so that, I think that was the most difficult part about me reading the book is because all the icky things happened. And then when you're reading a book, you're you're on someone's side or you're like rooting for something, or you're hoping for something to happen. But honestly, like at that point, I was just kind of like, I don't, I don't give a shit about Kafka. Like, Yeah, I couldn't stand him. And there was no reason, like you said, for me to care about him. I liked the Nakata chapters a lot more. And even the story is much more interesting. Like Kafka, in addition to being obnoxious, his storyline is just very stagnant. Like nothing really happens. Nakata's story is very clearly like, oh, they're on a road trip and then there's fish in the sky and then there's an entrance stone. So I just, I didn't like him. He was a hard character for me to get behind. And yeah, I don't know. In terms of like all the different problematic things that are in the book I think I I don't remember if I sent it to you but there was an interview with Murakami and this I think another Japanese author who's a female author and she asks him like what he thinks of people's criticisms of the way he writes women and uh there maybe their like lack of three-dimensionality and his answer is basically I don't know what you're talking about like, he doesn't see the problem. He was, like, saying how all of his characters are different in their own ways. And she was talking about something where a woman character was very obsessed with her, like, physical body. And he was like, but there are people like that. And he was just justifying everything. And I just, like, this man does not understand women. There is this a line in the book. And Miss Saiki goes, that was the summer of my first period very fondly as if romanticizing like do you remember your first period is that something you're like I remember like no (laughs) everyone was like what is happening mom help like what yeah I know I I, that's so true and yeah I, I I it's hard because I feel like this book has been on my like to be read for years now I've just never gotten around to actually reading it And it seems like a very, very popular book. And like based off the reviews that I've seen online, like I don't see a lot of people talking about the problems that we're that we see reading the book, which honestly is a little bit um, worrisome. But it's just interesting because I feel like he's such a talented writer and he's so um, appreciated by so many people where it's a little bit scary, where it's like you you want to look up to an author that has the same values as you or um, teaches you things or teaches you lessons or educates you in a way that you should be educated. It's just a little bit worrisome when you see authors like that writing about problematic things and then not being able to like see what their issues are. Yeah, I agree. That's how I felt also with the, the Oedipus storyline. I just felt like there were so many other ways to do that and do a retelling of Oedipus Rex or inspiration without making it such a misogynistic disaster. Um, Was this your first Murakami? No, I've read another one by him. Yeah, I read The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle a while ago. And I remember liking it, but feeling like the women characters were written without any depth. So I, I read Norwegian Wood and... I loved Norwegian Wood. It was it was such a tragic, sad story. So you have to be in the mood to cry to read that book. But after I read this book, I was just doing some research and found out that Norwegian Wood is his only realistic book that he's ever written. 
it's like the only like non-dreamlike, non-magic realism book that he's that he's written. So I was kind of expecting something like that. I didn't know that that, that I, what I was getting into when I started this book. I really liked his writing in Norwegian. I think he's a good writer. I think the way he is able to describe things, and especially like one thing I wanted to talk about was like how heavily music is influenced in this book like he talks about music so much and I feel like that's so hard to do in a book because music is you're using your ears but reading you're using your eyes so to be to be able to describe music in a book I think is a really hard task so I think he's a really talented writer but yeah this this specific book it it was it was a struggle yeah I I agree. I think he's a very good writer. And the fact that he is raising so many questions and we don't have answers and there's probably thousands of ways you could interpret this book. I think that's something to be said about his skill. And I remember liking the wind up bird chronicle a little bit more. There's something about cats and (laughs) it wasn't as icky. Like I just I noticed the issues with the way he writes women and I didn't like it but I could kind of get behind the rest of it. Uh, but this book, I just felt like fundamentally there were themes that I couldn't get behind. Yeah. Well, speaking about his writing, I do have a passage and I feel like it's one of the more famous passages in this book. So sometimes fate is like a small sandstorm that keeps changing directions You change direction, but the sandstorm chases you. You turn again, but the storm adjusts. Over and over, you play this out like some ominous dance with death just before dawn. Why? Because the storm isn't something that blew in from far away, something that has nothing to do with you. The storm is you, something inside of you. So all you can do is give into it, step right inside the storm, closing your eyes and plugging up your ears so the sand doesn't get in, and walk through it step by step. There's no sun there, no moon, no direction, no sense of time. Just fine white sand swirling up in the sky like pulverized bones. That's the kind of sandstorm you need to imagine. He does a very good job of describing things very viscerally, to the point that I had to skip some of the more graphic passages because they were so uncomfortable. And I don't know, he did a good job in that passage of kind of describing a feeling that isn't really straightforward to have a name yeah the words that he uses just gives you like a dark feeling like he said pulverized bones there's like this dark ominous thing about the words that he's putting on the page yeah do you think there is a difference between fate and destiny since we kind of pick those as our themes I don't know I I feel like the the two terms are used interchangeably to me I feel like fate is something less avoidable and destiny is a little bit more like you can write your own destiny you can't write your own fate Mm, I see but I don't know I mean they definitely have overlapping meanings sometimes I find the roots of words interesting and I'm just looking it up and fate comes from uh, I mean there's the three fates in Greek mythology and it comes from the Latin that which has been spoken okay And then destiny comes from also Latin, which means to make firm or establish, which is almost the opposite of what I just said. No, I think it it 
supports what you said. And I think it's that leads me to a good question to ask. And that's that. Do you think that Kafka was just choosing his destiny in the book? Or do you think it was just fate that was written for him and he was just doing what he was supposed to do? I think maybe it was fate for him to live out some version of what happened. But the way he chose to interpret it and its effect on him and what he chose to do, I think, was more destiny. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I agree with you. I wanted to kind of mention a lot of the literary devices and the metaphors that are used in the book. I mean, the whole thing, he constantly says different things are metaphors, different levels of metaphors. And there were so many random things that I kind of stopped questioning, like, why are there random World War II soldiers in this spiritual forest? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even question it. I was like, it's too far along at this point. But he kind of mentions things that he's going to use. Like at one point he talked about Chekhov's gun and compared it to the stone or to something. And I didn't, I wasn't able to figure out what, whether it was effective or not. Like I was like, is it clumsy that he's naming what he's going to use or is it inventive? What did you think of all the literary devices and how overt they were? Well, I think honestly, and this is just based off like some of the research I did on the author, and that's that I've seen that he uses a lot of his personal trauma or personal experiences in his writing. And I heard one of the biggest things that he puts into almost all of his books is something related to the war, because he feels like that's a part of who he is as an author. So I think that's just him using his own experiences. It's it's like an inside joke for him, but it's not a joke, obviously. War is not funny. And I think to outside people like us, like it just doesn't fully make sense. You have to be able to go to that extra step to understand who Haruki is as an author. Mm-hmm. What did you think about, because this kind of got me confused in the beginning of the book, of who is Crow? I also had that question for a while. And by the end, I kind of decided that he was Kafka's just inner monologue. Um, but I don't know if there's more to it than that. What did you think? When I think about the Crow, I think that the Crow is just like this per- outside person that lives inside Kafka that is pushing him in a direction or motivating him to go in, in a specific direction direction through divine intervention yeah the other thing I just thought of is throughout the book he includes a lot of philosophy or he alludes to a lot of philosophical concepts and I was wondering if you could kind of look at the book through these like id superego or id ego and superego like the freud kind of concept Mm -hmm. and I guess in that way it is like the instinct like base desires which Maybe is Kafka or something. And then yeah. Ego is reality. So that's so like the instincts it would be in his dream state or Nakata. And then the reality would be him when he's not inhabiting all these other souls. And then the superego is kind of the voice of reason or like the morality, which would be the crow. Crow. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense too. I like I like that perspective of yeah. Of, the book as well there's probably like a hundred different ways of yeah. understanding this book well it's time to filter the chai and the first question 
that we have to answer is, will this book stand the test of time? And I'm going to make you go first, Shruti. <laughs> Can I answer, like, what my opinion of the book is first? And yes. then I'll explain. Did I like this book? No. Did I hate it? Also no. I don't know how to rate this out of 10. But I I have to say no to standing the test of time. I just think there's so many things in there that are just mentioned and then unresolved in a really problematic way that is not going to add any value for readers. And for people who are not thinking about it critically, it could be damaging. And I think there's a lot of other books that do a similar thing to what Murakami is doing, that this is not so unique that it deserves that much recognition for all of everything else that's wrapped up in it. Yeah, I agree with you. I do, I do enjoy the little bits of like Japanese culture that we see in the book just through like the spiritual world. And I do have to agree with you. I don't think this book will stand the test of time. I think there's probably better resources out there for diving into Japanese culture in a more literary, creative, enjoyable way. But what do you do? You have a rating for this book? No. <laughs> you have to. Okay. I guess four out okay. of ten. I don't know. Like. There's a lot to talk about, and I liked his writing style, but there's a lot I really hated, so. I gave it a five and a half on ten. I, maybe I would recommend this book to somebody if I knew that they would enjoy magic realism and they like the author or this author's style. Yeah, agreed. Should we go to Shelf Discovery? Yes. All right. What are your picks for this book? I think I I put down Norwegian Wood as my shelf discovery. And that's just because I feel like I very enjoy Haruki Murakami's writing style. I remember really enjoying it when I read that book. And because that's his only book that's like more real and less magic-like, I feel like if that's not your style, then Norwegian Wood would be a good alternative to in- still enjoy his writing style, but not necessarily go that deep into philosophy. But just a fair warning that it is an extremely sad book. So don't just don't pick it up when you're happy. Pick it up when you're sad. To make me more sad? I don't know. Like <laughs> I get in that mood where it's like I'm sad and I just want to cry. So then like you purposely put on a sad movie or a sad book like that kind That's of fair. book. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Mine, I have two. So if you liked the metaphysical, philosophical, kind of inventive parts of this book, um, my recommendation is the New York Trilogy by Paul Auster. It's three novellas or short stories I guess that are in one novel that are all interconnected and the way it's set up initially is kind of like a detective story I guess but it gets more and more meta and you close the book being like what on earth did I just read like that kind of feeling and then Mm -hmm. you can dig into it more but without a lot of the icky misogyny so I would recommend that and for people who liked the magical realism elements I would recommend, people probably have heard of this, but God of Small Things by Aaron Lithy Roy. 
that also is kind of sad, but there's a lot of magical realism in that. In in it's the family that goes through kind of some generational trauma and uh, the effect on the children and the different characters. But it uses magical realism in a really interesting way where it's a lot more on the border of, well, maybe this really could happen. Mm-hmm. Those are fun recommendations. Postscript. Next episode, we're going to be talking about The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton. This book is our pick for New Zealand. It is also our last book for our theme around the world in 80 books. So tune in for that one. Thanks for listening to The Novelty. We are your hosts, Neha and Shruti, and our music is created by Apoorva Koti. We love to hear from you. So send us book recommendations, episode commentary, or even critical feedback. You can find us on Instagram at thenovelty.pod or email us at thenovelty.pod at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading.